this is Mike Howell. Welcome to another episode of Anatomy of a Chef. On today's show, I'm pleased to have executive chef Chris Starkus of Urban Farmer in Denver. As executive chef of Urban Farmer in Denver, Chris curates a locally focused, sustainably sourced steakhouse menu, which is influenced by the bounty of Colorado. Chris highlights his seasonally driven menu with nose-to-tail cuts of naturally raised meat, executed with finely honed French techniques. Overseeing the whole animal butchery in-house charcuterie program, I always have trouble with that, pardon me Chris. He also enjoys tending to the restaurant's rooftop apiary and state-of-the-art urban cultivators. He features homegrown mushrooms, microgreens, and sprouted grains all inspired by America's European ancestry. Chris unites ingredients grown on site with those harvest, harvested from closely regarded purveyors to offer rustic brunch, lunch, and dinner preparations with bold, straightforward flavors. That love for cuisine developed during his upbringing in Santa Clarita, California, thanks to his influence of his great-grandmother Minnie and his grandmother Mary the true matriarchs from scratch family meals, a tradition of their Italian heritage. After Chris completed his culinary studies in 2001, he found work at Wolfgang Puck's Chinois, and a year later, he made his way onto the opening team of Puck's Postrio in Las Vegas. He was first a tournant and later as an assistant pastry chef, which was a year-long apprenticeship position. His experience and dedication to the brand made him an obvious choice for the opening executive chef at Urban Farmer's fourth location in Denver. Since joining the Sage Restaurant Group, Chris has competed on Food Network's Chopped and has even studied beekeeping at Oregon State University, contributing to his work on the restaurant's rooftop apiary. So without further ado, please enjoy this show featuring executive chef Chris Starkus. Chris, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great, Mike. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Oh, pleasure. I'm glad you had the time and your busy day to come and join me today. I want to start with kind of talking about uh, where you grew up. We found out you lived in Santa Clarita, and I lived in Santa Clarita. I spent most of my, my childhood and my teens there. And kind of give us an idea of uh, what got you started in the restaurant business and kind of moving about and how you ended up in um, Colorado. Sure. Um, I'll give you the clip notes version, obviously. But I grew up <laughs> okay. in or, you know, Santa Clarita, Valencia area. Um, I went to Valencia High School out there. And um, when I was about 15 and a half, I got my learner's permit because all I wanted to do was drive. And um, learned how to drive and got my first job um, at Applebee's, actually, over by the uh, – it's like a Saturn dealership over there. I can't remember the cross streets right now. But I um, – Basically started there as a host and moved my way back into the kitchen. I was a host. I was a busser. Um, the kitchen kind of called me, and I wound up doing a lot of prep work and uh, expediting and found out really early on that I really enjoyed expediting, kind of being in the uh, – I mean, it's kind of like being the quarterback. You know, you're in the middle of everything, and I was right. about 16 years old. Um, I was on the golf team at the time at high school and kind of was at the point where I was realizing that I – wasn't good enough to kind of go pro or even get any college, uh, any college uh, scholarships. So mm. 
um, when I was good at cooking. So um, I was there for about two and a half years, worked all those positions, then decided to move to Las Vegas after I graduated high school and went to uh, live with my grandma. I was in, out there actually on my mother's side. And um, the, the plan was to go to school full time. I enrolled in actually the community college of Southern Nevada, um, mm. which is in North Las Vegas out there. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I, I moved out there and I was like, okay, I'm going to go to school full time. My dad said, focus on school. And I did, and then, but basically the way that I could do my classes was I could go to school Monday and Tuesday from 8 in the morning to 8 at night, take two six-hour classes back-to-back both days, and then the rest of my week was Wednesday through Sunday. And, you know, being, well, I guess the time was, what, 17, 18 years old in a city where you can't do anything until you're 21 right. was quite boring, and I didn't have any friends. I moved away from everybody. Um, just had my, my grandparents out there, and uh, so... My, daughter, my grandma watched uh, Wolfgang Puck and Emerald Lagasse on the Food Network when it was kind of starting out, and she said, hey, this guy, you know, Wolfgang, is, he's opening a restaurant and was hiring, and it was happened to be at the uh, forum shop in uh, Caesar's Palace. His uh, chinois was out there. Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah, so I basically went down there and actually applied for a, a buster position because, I, I mean, I literally had just rolled into culinary school, I, I didn't even know how to hold a knife because the prep work that I was doing before was basically just, you know, like portioning potatoes or like using dishes of butter and, and, and mm. dried herbs in the, in the bag, you know. And uh well, a guy comes out and he says, hey, I think we're hiring in, in the kitchen. And I, I kind of reiterate again that I don't have – that I don't have that skill set yet and that, you know, I, at the time I just thought everyone was chefs in the kitchen. Now, everyone knew what they were doing and everyone was right. highly skilled people. And I uh, wound up getting, you know, hired basically that afternoon and started as a prep cook uh, and then went to school full-time Monday and Tuesday and worked full-time um, right. starting there, yeah, as a prep cook. So what were you going to school for, just general ed stuff in the beginning? No, it was culinary school. Oh, culinary school, okay, okay. Yeah. Absolutely. It was culinary school. Um, I kind of took a tour and and my parents kind of were like, hey, you know, you can do this on a higher level. And, you know, I mean, I'm 17. I didn't didn't thought about it at all. And then as we went and we toured the school, you know, I saw the kitchens. And I've always been a type of person that learns by doing. You know, I wasn't Mm -hmm. the type of person that would sit down and read time and time again or and get a concept just by reading it. I had to go and do it. And so, um, that's kind of how I, you know, I guess I got good at what I do now, but, um, jumping right in and figuring it out. And then of course, you know, building friendships with people that knew how to do it better than I did. Right. Right. Oh, very cool. Um, so did, did were you ever, um, did you ever meet Wolfgang and, and get to work with him or, or spend any time with him while you were there? He would, yeah, I mean, I met him a couple of times. Um, at the time, I mean, I was just a cook, so. Um, yeah. He would he would introduce himself. He would come in the kitchens when we do um, uh, special parties, and you know he was always the life of the party. You know he, he would always come in. He was always a positive attitude, coming through, taking care of everybody, saying hi. Um, got to shake his hand and and see what he was doing. And of course he jumped behind the line and and work on a couple of things when he was there. But um, it wasn't a matter of he was already big before you know I yeah. had started working with him. So he he would just kind of you know, building his empire, I guess you could say. Yeah, I guess you could yeah. Just showing his face, pumping the flesh, kind of that stuff. That's kind of cool. Absolutely. Yeah. But the chef that I worked with for a while, I worked with him for um, a couple of years, uh, about, I think it was about a year at, um, 
at Chinois at the form shop there. And then I got, uh, he took me over to open Post Trio, which is the sister one out of San Francisco. And um, I opened as a garmage cook there, um, which is at the Venetian. And um, we basically, I started as garmage there. I worked the whole line, grill and, and pasta. I actually did a stint there for a year as a pastry chef, um, assistant pastry chef, rather. And, um, and then that was kind of my whole period of, of time with uh, Wolfgang Puck. And um, it, was, it was a great experience. I learned a lot of great, um, you know, I learned a lot, a lot from a lot of great people, but also just technique and putting your head down and working. You know, these are before yeah, the days of, of the Bravo shows and the Top Chef. You just had to go <laughs> and, and work with people. You know, that was all there was to it. Yeah, that's awesome. How did you end up in, in Oregon? It was just uh... – did you go from Hendrick to Vegas to Oregon? Yeah, I did. So um, when I worked with uh, – I, I left working for Wolfgang Puck and actually went to go work for Alex Strada over the, at Renoir at the Mirage Hotel for a year. And then we opened up Alex at the Wynn Resort, um, uh, which was a two-star Michelin restaurant there. Um, and then he kind of did a spinoff of his Trattoria, which was um, a Strada, which was also inside the Wynn. So I was the chef de cuisine there. And um, – they had a, we had a couple of people that came in, and uh, we were working with our general manager, and he said, "Hey, you got to meet these people." And at the time, at the time, my uh, you know my son was about six months old, and my wife was kind of like saying, "Hey, we wanted to kind of maybe get out of Vegas. We'd been there for a while, mm-hmm. and uh, they basically were looking for a private chef." And I met them. They were a family in Oregon, and they wanted somebody to cook for them. And they said, "Hey, we know you have a family, and we like we like your food." Well, you moved to the Pacific Northwest oh and see our private chef. Yeah, exactly. And I said, "Wow." We, you know, we we had talked a lot of details, and then I said, "Sure." And uh, so we wound up they wound up moving us to um, West Lynn, Oregon, is where we were. And um, basically, I was their private chef for two years. I'd worked uh, at their private home, and then uh, they had a couple other houses that I would fly with them. Um, we would go down to um, they would go down to Mexico. They had a house down there, and I would. I would stay with them down there for six weeks. They'd fly my family down, and we would, uh, I'd cook for them and, and stay in a condo nearby and, and just take care of them. Wow. Wow, that's sweet gig, it was, I guess. Yeah, it was, it was a really cool experience. Um, you know, they had, they had some girls that were in college, and as they graduated, um, you know, they decided that they wanted to travel some more around the world. You work for a company that was kind of worldwide, so – um, I said, okay, great, and um, we wound up kind of parting ways in a good way, and uh-huh. we loved Oregon, and then I wound up uh, applying to positions in Portland, and I, I really had a tough time getting any callbacks, um, so I wound up, uh, the GM that actually got me the job, he was working for Rick Moonen down in uh, Mandalay Bay, and my brother, who's two years older than me, um, had left working at Eiffel Tower when he was over at the Paris uh, hotel hmm. in uh, Vegas and he wound up being like the bar manager bartender for Rick over there and he said hey you should come join us they basically want to uh, build this restaurant here it had been there for I think about seven years at the time and they wanted to move to Hawaii they wanted to open one at the Royal Hawaiian oh, okay. and um, so I said great I'll come back to Vegas and my wife wasn't thrilled about that at all <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we wound up uh 
we wound up uh, renting our house out in Oregon, in Oregon, and we moved down, and we were basically there. And I said, hey, we would we would be there for a while before we went out to Hawaii. And we had, I wound up working for Rick for about 15 months, and um, you know the deal had fallen through in Hawaii, and I had been up front pretty early on saying, hey, I didn't want to stay in Vegas, and um, so I parted ways with them, and wound up kind of circling back to. Um, Oregon, and that's how I applied to Urban Farmer at the Ninth Hotel. And so the mm. pastry chef, the pastry chef that was there, I had actually worked with her husband at Wolfgang Puck at Post Trio, and you know everything. One thing led to another. She gave my resume to the chef. I got a call, did a tasting, and got the chef de cuisine position there. I think that was 2013. Oh wow, that's funny how things just kind of circle around and they happen like they it's, happen. It's very true. I mean, I'm probably not the only chef that'll tell you that this this market of people that are 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 you know chefs and cooks is a very small network of people, and um, you know we, there's there's a lot of opportunities. I think when you when you take care of people, they take care of you, and you, and you work yeah. with people. I mean, that's that's our commodity, you know. So yeah, absolutely. And you, you're right. I have a, had other ones say exactly the same thing. And when you hear that, you think to yourself. Well, that's crazy. There's so many restaurants in so many big cities all over the place, but really it is a – I used to be in the aerospace industry, and it was the same thing. You just get to know people, and if you're in it long enough, you end up running, crossing paths with the same people multiple times. As big Absolutely, as we, same yeah. thing. Yeah, and it is – It's most industries, It's the commodity is the people that you meet and what have you, and treat them well, treat them with respect, and you – They'll always be there for you if you need a helping hand, that's for sure. Well, agree, and it taught me a lot as, as a chef, too. You know, people, regardless of, of what the restaurant's doing, the restaurants you're in or not, I've worked with some really great teams, especially when I worked with, with Alex and, and at the Wynn Resort, and I still talk to a lot of those guys. A lot of them are still at the, at the, at the hotel as chefs and executive chefs, and they mm-hmm. all grew up, and it was a matter of, you never you never know what's going to happen, and people's lives change, and you know their priorities change, and whether they're cooks or stewards or whatever, you know, um, I always I always have the the um, thoughts to say, hey, you know, if you give your notice, you give proper notice, you work it out, then that's that's all you can do, you know. Right. I mean, you, yeah. You know, there's all I've worked at a lot of places where there's a lot of animosity of people leaving, and like you know, like there, there's no other place on the planet that could be better for you <laughs> except for the place you're working at, right? You know, and it's like, well, you know, people want to grow, you know. Right, yeah. There's a it's a whole big world out there. There's a lot going on. And that totally, of, totally. Yeah. There's there's so many new restaurants, you know, coming up and that's where that's the way Oregon was, you know, and I got up there and there's a lot of chef owned places out there that are doing some really cool stuff and you know, where I came from was a lot of you know, lunch dinner or dinner only and mm-hmm. you know, at Urban Farmer we're breakfast, lunch and dinner and we're synonymous with hotels, um, in terms of you know, working with them and, and, but being destination restaurants still. And so um, that's kind of what brought me to Urban Farmer and, and Portland and saying, you know, this team was kind of blowing up um, and, and to kind of check out what was going on there. Yeah. So take us to Urban Farmer in Denver. The, I guess the company decided to kind of um, expand their, their little enterprise and, and move out there. Did you guys, how were you brought on to kind of be the executive chef to kind of get this thing up and going? Did you all take some trips out there and look around and form a, a business plan or how did that come about? 
So urban farmers, so the original urban farmers in Portland, I worked there for about four years, and, um, you know, it's under a company called Sage Hospitality, which is based here in Denver. And Mm. um, Urban Farmer was the first one in in Portland. They opened the second one in Cleveland. The third one's in Philadelphia, and this is actually the fourth. So um, as as those opened up, you know, I had been – uh, as I, I said previously in Vegas, I had been part of a lot of restaurant groups that said, hey, we want to grow, we want you to be this and that, and then nothing would just nothing would become of it. And that's been quite the opposite for Stage, and, and uh, specifically Urban Farmer, but also their other brands as well. And the way they treat their people and the way they treat, um, you know, the, the concept in terms of sourcing and, and what we do um, is, is exactly who, who, who I am. And so when the opportunity in Denver came along, I wasn't necessarily interested in Cleveland or Philadelphia. Like I said, I grew up on the West Coast, so um, mm-hmm. Denver fit Denver fit myself and my family about what I want to do, uh, you know, as far as on my off time between cycling and golf and gardening and beekeeping to what I want to do and run a restaurant. And so basically came down, I, I put my interest in the hat and did a tasting for it with, um, you know, all the executives in the room. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, you know, they offered me the position. And so, we are, um, like I said, I've been down here about six weeks now, and we are at the Oxford Hotel, um, right down, uh, right near Union Station, and we are, we are currently just under construction. I'm not sure if you can hear. Oh, okay. I'm in my office, and you can hear all the construction banging and all that stuff going on. But actually, can't um, hear a thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good then. What? I'm sorry. What's the name of the hotel again? The Oxford Hotel. Oxford. Okay. And um, basically, it's one of the oldest hotels in Denver. And um, what was here prior was actually a McCormick and Schmidt that was here for like 30 years. And um, we basically decided to take this spot over. It's a beautiful spot. It's a beautiful building. They refurbished the whole hotel, refreshed it, um, all five levels, as well as um, building out the whole new space, a brand new kitchen. Um, and so... We have uh, – there's a number of things we have going on. So we have – we're going to have our own uh, dry aging cooler in the uh, in the kitchen up top that you can actually see from the street side um, uh, in, in our kitchen. We have uh, – I'm also a beekeeper, so we have three rooftop beehives uh, that I put up there as well. So I'm, we have those that will use the honey <coughs> – excuse me, the honey and the bee pollen um, on cheese carts, on our cheese cart service. Mm. Um, we have our, we do our whole animal butcheries. We have our own butcher shop downstairs where we break down, um, you know, chickens and fish and, and pigs and, uh, beef. We, we generally get a cow a month, uh, a pig a week. And of course, chickens and fish and oysters and things like that throughout the week. Um, and then of course we have our, our bread and pastry programs. So we have a pastry chef as well that we do all of our own in-house English muffins and we do all the banquets for the hotel. Um, as well. Um, so basically, you guys are not serving yet. You're not. You're not doing anything at the moment because you're building stuff out. But correct, we're slated to open August. 6th. Oh, okay, good. So August. Is everything on schedule? You think so far, right at this point? Um, my cross crossing my fingers and uh, knocking <laughs> on wood. Yes. <laughs> Lord willing, the creek don't rise. <laughs> <laughs> you never know, but it, it seems like it at this point in time as we're talking, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, at least you didn't have to start from very scratch, I guess, building from nowhere, nothing. Agreed, agreed, yeah. What do you consider your um, your signature dish, something that people that know you will say, yeah, 
Chris knocks this out of the park every time. Do you have one of those in your back pocket? Um, I would say probably the charred octopus. Um, oh, okay. You know, I would say that, uh, you know, right now the dish that we're going to have coming on is a, it's a play on some classic flavors. So it's a, uh, it's a braised octopus that we char. You get a, a full tentacle. Um, it's, it's over a saffron spetzel, um, black garlic, chorizo oil, chives, and uh, perno poached mussels. Wow. Sounds and that's, that, that's I put that on the menu in Portland, and I'm going to bring it out here um, to Urban Farmers. It's definitely one of my signature dishes that, I, that I've had for a while. Um, and it kind of just puts together my seafood background and my love for creativity and kind of taking – um, some of the expected flavors and pushing them to the unexpected, whether that means how they're put together, textures, and or how they're presented on the plate. I think that's right. kind of who I am. Gotcha. Um, is the menu at Urban in, in Denver going to differ from the other urban farmers? Or are you pretty much how, – how does that work when you have, like, multiple restaurants within a group? Does, sure. the, does the executive chef get the kind of – be as creative as they wish and kind of go out there and do what they want? Or is there a corporate hand in it saying you must do this X, Y, and Z? We'll let you do a few well, things. To a, to a certain extent, and that's the one thing I love about Sage is that they, they, they take this very serious because they don't want it to be cookie cutter. A lot of our, a lot of our executives have come from, you know, a lot, a lot of, I'm just trying to think about the, the top of my head, like, you know, Landry's and, and, uh, you know, uh, those types of background where there's so many of them and then how do you keep mm. them the same? How do you keep them consistent? Right. So right. basically what right now is we have, I would say about half of the menu is that way. And then the other half is creative license. Now, a lot of what the executive chef um, at each property does is, is the local sourcing. And that's what we're known for. So for okay. instance, we have, we have a steak tasting on our menu. I think is what's one of our signature items, meaning you have, um, three and you have the option of a fourth six ounce new york and you have you start with a grass-fed six ounce new york you go into a grain-fed six ounce new york um going into um our dry age 21 day new york and then a wagyu new york as well so with that being said we source locally for that grass-fed for that grain-fed for that wagyu and for that uh, 21 day dry age so that's part of what I'm doing now is laying the groundwork and building relationships of where am I going to find these locally? Cause we're not doing commodity. Gotcha. We're doing, you know, and so that's what the difference is. So you're going to get the difference in Philadelphia and Cleveland and Portland. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Okay. And then of course there's local flares in terms of, I like to carry a little bit more seafood on my menu. We're going to be focusing on seafood platters in our dining room. We're going to have a, kind of a, a shellfish and charcuterie station that, uh, will be out in the dining room for you to see, which will have, you know, fresh uh, oysters and, and seafood as well as um, the charcuterie that we make in-house from our Hawaiian productions. Are you going to do any um, drying and that kind of stuff of the of your meats at, in the restaurant as well? Like the 21-day, yes, would absolutely. you do that yourself? Yes, absolutely. We have oh. uh, we have a whole dry-aging cooler in the, in the uh, kitchen, and we'll, break, we'll basically dry-age all of our short loins that way. And then cut down, um, you know, our 21 days. We'll do 42 days, um, and we 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 just kind of experiment all the time. And uh, I think the longest I've gone is about 115 days on uh, on a short line, just to kind of see what it see what happens. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. yeah, I gotta have some fun, you know. Yeah, how'd it come out? It was great. If you love mushrooms and blue cheese, you'd love it. 
Oh, okay. And I do. Yeah. I love mushrooms and blue yeah, cheese for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, the the drying meat hanging in the cooler is that going to be part of the one that's that faces the sidewalk where people can walk by and see inside and see it? Yes, that... exactly. So that oh, would be okay. that one we have is strictly for that. So you'll have we'll have oh, all of our beef and other accoutrement in there. Whether they're you know we're doing uh, chorizos or sausages, we'll all be in there. Um, right. And that's specifically what it's for. Yep. Um. When you get the pig in, you get the whole pig, not just parts of it. You get the whole of it. So you're doing like nose to tail, the whole nine yards, breaking it down. Exactly, exactly. So we'll, we'll use the skin to make chicharrones. We'll braise the head and make, uh, you know, terrines or riettes for our charcuterie boards. We'll use the chops on our dinner menu, and sometimes we pound them out to make schnitzels. Um, you know, we use the fat in our sausages for our breakfast program, and the grinds, same thing. Um, the trotters will either braise and put in our uh, pig stocks for some of our soups. Mm. So, yeah, it, it, it changes at each location how the chef wants to execute it. Um, you know, when we, bring it, when we bring in the beef, same thing. We break it down. We have a specialist card that we cut, what we call have butcher's cuts on there. So you have, like, your, your bavettes and your culottes um, as far as some different cuts that maybe people aren't used to hearing or trying. Uh, we render down all the fat for um, the kidney fat for our candles on our table so we don't throw anything out. Okay. Uh, yeah, all the kidneys we use in livers. Uh, the kidneys and livers we use in pâtés. Um, and then, of course, we break down the rest of it, whether it's grind for our hamburgers um, or any other charcuterie that we want to make. And all the cuts will make it onto an additions card that is changed uh, daily and weekly um, mm. besides what the steaks we have on our actual menu. Gotcha. So I'm curious. I don't know if anybody else listening to this is going to be as curious. When you get a full cow delivered for your butcher shop, is it skinned and halved, or how does that? How do you receive that from the farm? It, yeah, it, it is skinned. So we have to go through USDA no matter what. So we find a butcher um, in town, and we've located one here. We think that we're going to use, um, and as well as a rancher, and we talk to them about. Um, we visit the farm and we talk to them about how how do they farm and how mm. is uh, how how do they want to feed and, and kind of go from there. And so when it comes to us, it's, yes, it is skin. Um, there's generally not a head, um, and then the rest of it is about broken down into about six, eight parts, depending on the butcher and depending on the rancher. Oh, okay. um, and then we and we kind of break it down from there and use you know again the bones and the stalks. Um, and right. you can break down a cow in a number of ways. So we look at, um, I'll work with the butchers, and we'll talk about what our best yields are going to be, and then understanding um, for our market what uh, what cuts we want to take off the cow and, and where we want to utilize it. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, when you when you prepare bone marrow mm-hmm. for you know for a patron or a client, what have you, um, which part of the bone are you using in the animal? We're using the femur bone of the eye legs. Oh, okay. And that's yeah. primarily the, the main bone that most people would use for doing that? I would say, yeah, the rest of them are used kind of for stock because you're actually going to get a good round, um, you know, you're going to get a good chunk of marrow out of that. Oh, I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. That was just yeah. a probably a sick question for some, <laughs> for most people to hear, but I've always been curious. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, if they're if they're large enough, depending, we'll cut them down. But uh, generally, that's what we use. Yeah. So now moving to Denver, um, and you said you golfed when you were in high school. 
what other activities are you doing outside the kitchen that you do with the, because you're married with two kids. What do you guys, yep. what have you explored? What have you done? What are your outside interests outside the kitchen that you like to, to entertain yourself with? Um, so a couple things is we have a pretty large garden. We like to, we like to garden a lot. Um, I do have bees at home as well and we have chickens as well. My kids love having chickens and, and getting <laughs> eggs. We kind of, we kind of have what we call our starkest homestead in that respect. So I'll work on around the house, um, and, and kind of you know, work with that stuff. Um, I like to cycle mountain bike and road bike. And so does my family. Oh, cool. Um, my son's really into baseball. And so we've been kind of going to his baseball games and teaching him that. So we'll play wolf ball or, or play something in the front yard. We love going hiking and exploring. You know, there's a lot of dinosaur fossils out here in Colorado that we've gone mm. to. And, of course, a lot of places like Red Rock and Golden to go out and kind of check out new hikes. So um, that's, that's kind of what we do. We, I love being outside. I, I just love being outside all the time. I mean, I was this morning at 6 in the morning and, went outside and I was watering the garden, you know, feeding the chickens, checking on the bees. And, you know, from about six to, you know, 11 o'clock before I hit the train coming down here, I was outside that whole time. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, How'd you I, get into, how'd I you love get being in, outside. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm living in San Diego. So if you don't like being outside, yeah. you, you can't live in San Diego. <laughs> Agreed. Totally. <laughs> how did you get into beekeeping? I find that it's kind of a fascinating industry. I think. Yeah. I, Totally. I, you know what? They were there was a company in Portland called Be Local um, that was kind of kind of making their way. They were getting a lot of press, and the owner Damien and his partner Ryan were just kind of putting putting up uh, beehives. And I call, I just cold called them, emailed them, and said, Hey, you know, I really like to to have a couple on the roof here at the Ninth Hotel. Um, one one caveat though, when you come out, I want you to teach me what you're doing. Oh. And and honestly, I did not plan on going into it as deep as I am now. I thought, oh, yeah, I'll learn it. I'll be able to know some facts about it. And then I really want to know how I can use it in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And I, I just fell, I just fell in love with it. I I, uh, I just went as far as just, like, working on my apprentice-level certification to understand beekeeping more. There's a seven, six- or seven-year master beekeeping program that I've kind of put myself in through um, – um, you know, it was uh, Oregon State University and then uh, Colorado State as well mm. to kind of under, to understand more about it. And, of course, just promoting, you know, um, pollination. And, and that's part of the restaurant ethos here is that we are going to have um, locally sourced and adaptive uh, wildflowers to kind of give out to people to promote that, that project oh, as well to say, hey, we need to, we need to be on top of pollinators. And whether they're honeybees or native, we need to take care of them because it's it's a base of what I do as a chef, and of course, eating uh, across the board for anybody, it, it, it will affect our world. Yeah, absolutely. Do you do you actually have um, so when these things are up on bees are up on the roof? Do you have flowers on the roof for them, or do you, do they just come and go from the hive and go out and forage wherever they go, and then just keep coming back? It's so all of the above, all of the above in Portland. I, I had uh, 12 rooftop beds that I curated as well with all sorts of flowers and vegetables. And now out here in Denver, we're going to have a patio with um, plenty, of pla- um, plenty of places I can put plants. So I'll have edible flowers, edible herbs, um, and mm. curate that as well that they will fly down. They will fly up to, uh, they, I, I, I believe it's about a mile they'll fly to if they need to. Um, but you'd be surprised when you're walking through the city next time, even in San Diego, when you walk downtown and anybody listening, 
pay attention to what's around. You'll you, once you start to realize how many flowers are around. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fo- there's a lot of forage for the bees out there. Um, we can always plant more, of course, but you'd be surprised within the city. Everyone just thinks that there's concrete everywhere that there's nothing for them. But there's there's a lot. Oh, that's interesting. What about the winter time? How do they kind of make do in the winter time if everything's covered in snow? Well, they basically um, they don't fly unless it's 55 degrees or above. And in the winter time, they do what they call clusters. So they will cluster around the queen and whatever brood they have. And they will eat the honey because that's what they're storing uh, all year oh, okay. um, to get through the winter time. And so oh. if if they um, if it gets a little bit warmer outside, like it does here, it'll get cold, and then of course warm during the day. Mm-hmm. And it breaks 55, they will fly out of the hive and do what they call cleansing flights, which you could figure out, right? And mm-hmm. they they basically uh, stay in that cluster and eat the honey during that period of time. And so. My my expertise as a beekeeper is understanding how much I can take from the hive and how much needs to stay in there. And roughly oh, wow. in Denver, it's about leaving 70 pounds of honey uh, per hive for them to make sure they have um, enough to overwinter. Right. So when you, I don't know what you call it when you remove the honey from from the hive. Um, yeah, harvesting. Harvest. Um, so you take the. I'm going to call it a plate. I'm not sure where the where the hot, where the honeycomb the comb is. Do you right. just kind of just just stand it on something and let the honey run out into into to something to catch it, and then you go from there. There's a number of ways you can do. Like um, if you're just doing the comb, you can do what they call crush and strain, which is uh, relatively what you described there. You generally have like a cheesecloth. You crush everything that's there. The, the wax stays up top, and then gravity feeds the honey through. Mm-hmm. Um, either strainer, chinois, or it could be cheesecloth. Um, but when you have foundation frames, um, you basically use what's called an uncapping knife, and you cut you cut the caps off the top, um, and you put it in a um, in in a harvester, which will basically, by centrifugal force, take all the honey out mm-hmm. um, by by spinning it. And then, um, you know, it kind of goes down the sides of that spinner and goes into a bucket for harvest. I gotcha. Oh, interesting. Yes. Yep. Fascinating, fascinating. Good stuff. Yeah, so we were, we use, we use the honey um, in the in the uh, kitchen for some of our vinaigrettes. We use it, uh, we use the pollen on some of our foie gras dishes and some of our breakfast uh, parfaits and things like that, even on our avocado toast for brunch. And then we use the wax. We'll make, like, lip balms. I make candles from it. So, we again, you know, nose to tail or whole hive, whatever you want. To say, <laughs> we, we use it all, you know. All gets used one way or the other. Well, that's, that's, right. the, that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. That's cool. Green. Other than a sharp knife, what kitchen tool can you not live with and why? Um, I love a Japanese mandolin. I think it's so versatile. Um, to slicing things how I need them for, whether it's a salad or a garnishment. Um, And, you know, generally you don't want to do it on a slicer. I mean, sometimes cleaning up the whole slicer just to do a bulb of fennel kind of is a little Mm. little much when you're talking about efficiency in the kitchen. So over my career, I've always had that Japanese mandolin in my bag, and I I use it all the time. And so I think, to me, that's, that's the most important for me. It almost is a sharp knife for some instances. Totally, yeah. Agree. Yeah. What advice would you give a new culinary graduate, having been graduating yourself? Uh, you know, 
one of the things one of the things I talked about. Um, I, I did a graduation speech recently, and it was basically, and I had to think, I had to think deeply about this in terms of what, what would I tell somebody, you know? And I think that um, a a show up to work. Okay, I know that sounds. I know that sounds just like crazy in terms of just being very basic advice, but you would be surprised in the restaurant industry, and you might even remember from your background, people are sometimes are not reliable. And so some, a lot of the opportunities that I've gotten as a chef and a cook have been because people haven't been reliable or they don't show up to work or they show up late. And mm-hmm. I'm the one who's always there learning a new thing or jumping on the station when someone doesn't show up. And, and you know, it's hard times, but... Sometimes uh, that's how you learn best. That's how I learn best by jumping yeah. into it. And so, I would say number one, I would say number one that that was that was it. Number two, I would say you know basically read more. I, I guess I I guess I wish I read I, I read a lot more than I did, and I read a ton now on the train, and it's gotten me a lot uh, deeper thinking into everything that I'm doing, whether it's creating or understanding relationships with chefs or you know staffing. And then I, I I would say find a mentor, you know, um, you know finding a mentor and you know a mentor can kind of choose you I guess, but I always see it the other way around. You know you have to choose that person, um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody in the industry. I don't think it has to be a chef, but somebody that's going to help guide you and help you make good choices for your career. And I think that the, with those three things you can be successful. I, I agree. Find a mentor who'll tell you to show up for work. <laughs> yeah, I totally, totally agree, man. You know, and some people need that, and I, and I, I yeah. yeah, it's like any life coach or anything like that or trainer, same thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree. If you had to choose three herbs or spices for the next year, what would they be? And salt and pepper don't count. <laughs> um. <laughs> You know, I would say, you know, flat leaf parsley is a big one. Um, I think because I like to use herbs a lot in what I'm doing. Um, using the stems, you can use the whole thing in stocks, and it kind of gives the extra flavor profile. Mm-hmm. Um, I love cor- the, the spice coriander, coriander seed. Um, I love in vinaigrettes and in spice mixes. I think it's just one of those things that brightens up a dish. And then I would say probably French thyme or, sorry, English thyme. Um, again, for stocks and sauces, just because, it's the base of everything that we do, and mm-hmm. if that's not good, you're not going to be able to create something good. Awesome. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> what is the best lesson your father ever taught you? Um, I would say it's probably two things. I would say at the value of a dollar, definitely, you know, understanding how to, how to make money, how to um, uh, respect it. Um, is, and manage it. My, my dad was in the banking industry. He was like a, a savings and loan and, and mortgage officer for years, so it's close to his heart. Um, but also, I think not taking things too seriously. You know, I'm, I'm a really lighthearted person. Um, you know, I can be serious at times, but I also expect that of the people I work with. Like, hey, you know what? We all have our different lives. We all bring it to work, and we're here to create good things. And you know what? There's going to be things that fall off the rail. It's, it's just what a restaurant is. There's going to be things that, that fall down. If we learn from them and don't let them happen again, understand, then that's it. And yeah. so I'd say those two things for sure. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, working for the urban farmer up in, in Oregon, what do you think attributes the success of the restaurants or even Sage as a company as a whole 
what do you what do you attribute the success? Because that's not an easy industry to be in, and there's probably some yeah. restaurant tours that may be listening to the show that are having a little hard time with their independent little restaurant. Sure. So what do you think? I think I, I was going to say, I think that they're really good at, at just building community. You know what I mean? Um, building community, building their network of chefs, and, and as a brand, you know, really understanding what their ethos is and promoting it and, and being true to it. You know I mean? Like I was telling you earlier, you know, we're allowed – as the executive chefs to source our ingredients and that's the trust that's put into us to make mm-hmm. make it good because what a restaurant is what what makes a restaurant I would say a company good is the people working there and the quality of products you're working with. They have to be synonymous with one another. I agree. So if there's someone out there kind of I picture someone kind of struggling, their business has gone down, or they're just trying to make it out there. I think it's, I, I, I agree with you there, it's either the people that are working there, or it's the food that they're creating, or it could be both. Yep. Yeah, could be both. totally. And you need to kind of look at both of those two, and take a really hard look, or bring someone in with an unbiased opinion, and have them try the food, and try the service. And then you have to live with the criticism and make the adjustments accordingly. Yeah. I think I think when people put their heart and soul, they really don't they can't see the forest of the trees, if you will, if there's a problem yeah. of what's going on. But it's a shame. So I have a challenge question here for you. You receive a request to cater a dinner party for twenty five guests with a budget of five hundred dollars, okay. about twenty bucks a piece. So this is on the cheap. Okay. The menu is to include two hors d'oeuvres, two main courses, and a dessert. Describe the menu you would create. All right. I would say it would probably be a combination of kind of land and sea finished with a little bit of garden and bees. And so I think that, um, you know, I'd probably, you know, in, in the past I've come up with like what's a bone marrow mousse. And so by doing that you can do like a bone marrow mousse on grill bread. Um, with some like nice house pickled items, which is by and by making that mousse, you're kind of elongating the bone marrow that you have, so you can kind of make it go further. So uh, cost-wise, there is, is a good place, gotcha. uh, a good thing. Um, a dish that I've done in the past is what I've called a um, everlasting oyster, which is you, you know one oyster, and you basically kind of take the liquor in there and you mix it with um, a drop of a really peaty um, scotch. And and like a, a really small portion of um, like a, a phytoplankton, and what that does, phytoplankton tastes a lot like um, kind of powdered oysters to me. And so by mm. having just one oyster, it get, again elongates the experience of just having like a beautiful mouthful and flavor kind of lasts for a long time, has a really long finish. So you kind of get a lot of bang for your buck there. Okay. Um, being, you know, saying that we're it's going to be here in Denver, I would say that I would go into a uh, a rainbow trout, um, and 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 have a fish dish that way. Going into probably um, probably a local lamb chop. Um, you know, you can do a, uh, even like a quarterback and and put enough garnish with it to make sure you're getting to like you said that budget of five hundred dollars. Right. So you can give someone two, two chops instead of four. Um, I would do uh, one thing that we're going to have on the menu here is a, a hibiscus tea marinated lamb. 
Um, so you can do that just by marination. Um, and then I'd probably finish it with um, one of the dishes I like to do that – have you ever heard of an Ebelskiever? No. How do you spell it? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, can you edit that? Uh, Ebelskiever? <laughs> Ebelskiever. I believe it's – I believe it's E B E L S K I V E R. I'll figure it out. Okay. Yeah. No, I haven't heard of it. And what, I do a foie gras dish on it, but at least for desserts, um, I would basically it's like it's it, think of it as like a donut hole. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, you can do them sweet or savory, and I like to uh, you make them in a pan that's specific for them, and you, they get these little round donut holes. They're nice and warm, like any other warm bread, um, and I, you garnish it with sea salt, bee pollen, and honey, and oh. I tell you what, it's the best you've ever had. <laughs> it sounds amazing. Oh. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a donut freak anyways, but that sounds really, really good. This is yeah. cool. Yeah. It's, it's, a good, it's a good dish. Yeah, it sounds like it. Sounds like it. Well, Chris, I really appreciate you hanging out with me today and taking time away from your busy construction schedule and getting that restaurant up and running. I want you to tell everybody how they can get a hold of you on what you're... Um... Well, sure. Um, well, thank you for having me on, Mike. It was great Absolutely. talking to you. And, thank you. And uh, I am on Twitter and Instagram at Chris Starkus, which is C-H-R-I-S-S-T-A-R-K-U-S, uh, and that is um, all one word. Cool. And the restaurant, is it Urban Farmer Denver? It's Urban Farmer, and then it's just a Denver location. So if okay. you look up on the website, urbanfarmerrestaurant.com, you'll see uh, the Denver location, and you'll get all our information there. Cool. And all right. Got it. And any links that we talked about, anything, I'm going to link up the, the beekeepers that you talked about, the Portland Bee, Lo Portland Bee local up there. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Ryan, Ryan and those guys are good, good friends of mine, too. That's still working yeah, them, so. so they can get some love. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, sir, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Have a great rest of the week, and much success to you and the restaurant. And if I ever make it out to Denver, I'm certainly going to swing by and say hi. Please do, Michael, and then uh, thank you. And hopefully you're having a great day in San Diego. My bet is that you probably are. <laughs> well, guilty as charged. <laughs> All right, awesome. thanks, man. Take, Have a great day. Care. Bye. You too. Bye. Be sure to visit us at AOAChef.com for all the show notes. You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at AOAChef. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.